Shalom, brothers and sisters. I'm Brother Sid. I have Brother Corey assisting me today. We are the Commandment Keepers Church. We have a detailed lesson prepared for our brothers and sisters internationally. The title of today's lesson will be Meaning in the Miracles. Meaning in the Miracles. Brothers and sisters, uh, today's lesson will be centered around the Messiah, around the Hamashiach. Christ. Uh, we're going to take a look at the gospel, brothers and sisters, um, in specific, not the synoptic gospels, but John's gospel. If you've read the gospels, you understand that John's gospel is different from the other three. John is, is my favorite. It's my favorite gospel, brothers and sisters. The other three were simply a record of events. John's was specifically uh, orchestrated or constructed for a particular purpose. And we're going to find out what John's main concern was today, brothers and sisters. The title, Meaning in the Miracles. We're going to go to John, the 20th chapter, in the 30th and 31st verse. John 20, verse 30. And many other signs truly did Christ in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. So it's clear, brothers and sisters, John is telling you that there was many other signs that are not in this book. That tells us what? The signs or miracles that John put in his record were specific. Could you read that one more time, brother? John 20 and 30. And many other signs truly did Christ in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Why? That you might believe that Christ is the Savior. Look at that. The Son of God. And that believing you might have life through his name. So the author of John's gospel is clear about the purpose of the book. Brothers and sisters, according to the author, the purpose of John's gospel is to authenticate the identity of the Messiah. So he had a, he had a purpose. He had a motive. Between what he put in this record, brothers and sisters, because the text tells us what you'll discover, brothers and sisters, if you study the book of John, there's seven miracles or signs, right? Signs are something you see. So that's critical. That's vital. Why didn't he put miracles? Why did he put signs instead of that? Why did he use that verbiage? There's what you call the seven I am's. There are seven I am statements in the book of John, brothers and sisters. There are also seven signs or miracles in the book of John. And why did he put it there? Verse 31, brother. 31. But these are written that you might believe that the Lord is the Savior, Christ, the Son of God. See, that's the whole purpose. He's concerned with you believing or, you know, the audience understanding who the Messiah is. So according to what we're reading, John methodically selected the signs and miracles contained in this record. Right. Because he said there's uh, there's many other signs that are not written in this book, meaning what he meticulously, he methodically chose which signs or miracles he would put in this record. Brothers and sisters, and I can assure you, John's choice of which details to include and which to omit was not accident. So we're going to take a look at what he meticulously or methodically chose to put in his record. Brothers and sisters, I believe. That brothers and sisters will have a greater appreciation, not just of John, but of those four books called the gospel, brothers and sisters. 
Let's go to John, the second chapter. Let's break down these miracles the, or these signs. We're going to go through them one by one in chronological order, brothers and sisters. We're going to John, the second chapter. We're going to have Brother Corey read the first through the 11th verses. John 2, verse 1. In the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Christ was there. And both Christ was called and his disciples to the marriage. Now look at this, brothers and sisters. Look at this closely because John's account of the first miracle begins with Christ and his disciples being invited to what? A wedding feast. Verse 3. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Christ saith unto him, They have no wine. Christ saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants. Read four one more time, brother, please. Verse four. Christ saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Look, look at that, brothers and sisters. According to Christ's response, he's aware that he's on a divine schedule and everything needed to happen right on time. What did he say one more time, brother? Christ saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother said unto the, to the servants, Whatsoever he said unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Christ said unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they buried. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not where it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. So here we're seeing that what, brothers and sisters, his first sign or miracle was turning water into wine, right? Can you read 9 one more time, brother? Verse 9. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have been well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. He said, typically, right, every man, he put forth the good wine first, right? And then subsequent to that, after people are, you know, filling feeling warm inside, then they put together or put out that which would be considered second or, or worst, right? Continue, brother. Verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Christ in Cana of Galilee. Read that again, brother. This beginning of miracles did Christ in Cana of Galilee. This was the beginning of miracles of Christ in his ministry. And manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. So his disciples believed on him from this moment, brothers and sisters. So this is what happened here. But there's something we can't miss, brothers and sisters. Let's jump back up to the fourth verse. We wanted to just read it straight through to refresh our brothers and sisters' memory of this particular story. Most people who are familiar with the Bible, they remember this. But now we have to break it down because there was a purpose and why John put that, this particular sign in his record. He could have put, according to him, 
He could have put a myriad of other signs, but he chose these. And this was the first one. Why? We have to go to verse 4 to find out. John 2 and 4. Christ saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Look at that, brothers and sisters. Why did he call his mother woman? Could you read that again? Verse 4. Christ saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, brothers and sisters, by recording that Christ addressed his mother as woman, the author provides an invitation to seek out the answer. You see that? The key to unlocking the meaning of this event at Cana is the original usage of the word woman. Brothers and sisters, John is doing what? John is connecting the beginning of Christ's ministry to the fulfillment of a promise in Eden. We'll read that one time and then go to the precept in Genesis. Verse 4, Christ saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, a lot of people will look at this and say, well, Christ, what Christ was trying to do was really separate himself from his mom or he was showing you that he was God and not, you know, that wasn't his real mother in the flesh. None of that is, and all of that's incorrect. The Bible doesn't validate that. The Bible doesn't authenticate that particular philosophy, brothers and sisters. Everything in the record, everything in the Bible is there for a purpose, Right. And you'll miss a lot of it. You'll miss a lot of the hidden truths, brothers and sisters, or the principles, if you just believe things are coincidence. There are no coincidences in the Bible, brothers and sisters. We're going to read that one more time just so you can hear how he addressed his mother. And then we'll go into the Bible to see if it yields the, the evidence of what it means. Verse 4, Christ saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Christ called his mother woman. Now, brothers and sisters, we, we've said that what? The key to unlocking this event is the original usage of the word woman. Where do we find that first? Where's the first time we see that word woman? Let's go to Genesis, the third chapter, brothers and sisters, because what you'll discover, what you'll find is that this was the fulfillment of a prophecy. Brothers and sisters, we're going to go to Genesis 3. We're going to have Brother Corey start at verse 14 and read it all the way through verse 20. Genesis 3 and 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now we remember this was the pronounced curse on the serpent here, right? Verse 15. What's 15 say, brother? Listen closely, please, brothers and sisters. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And the what? And the woman. And the what, brother? And the woman. And between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Mary and Christ are the fulfillment of this particular passage, brothers and sisters. Do you see this? You see, the this is the first time you find this, right? According to the text, the Messiah's chosen vernacular was meticulous. Let's read that one more time, brother, verse 15. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Who was her seed? Who was Mary's seed? The Messiah, Christ, right? 
and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now what you'll discover, brothers and sisters, well, well, let's let the scriptures interpret itself. Let me be quiet. Verse 16. Unto the woman he said. Unto who? The woman he said. I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband. And he shall rule over thee. What you'll discover, brothers and sisters, is that, Gen uh, that Eve did not have a name until Genesis, the third chapter, the 20th verse. Let's go there. Let's jump down a few scriptures, brother. Verse 20. Verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve. What did he do? He called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. See? So up until this point, up to up until Genesis 3 and 20, she was called woman. See that, brothers and sisters? So as we read the text, we see that the Messiah's choice of words was an invitation. It was an invitation. Let's read it one more time. Let's read 15 because this was the fulfillment of this particular scripture or it was the beginning of the fulfillment, right? This is the first time we see woman. Verse 15. And I will put enmity, enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, Christ used that particular term, that, you know, that terminology as an invitation. And guess what, brothers and sisters? We find similar connections at the foot of the cross. The second time Christ addresses his mother this way. He could have called her anything in the world. Why did he use that terminology? See? Let's go to John 19, brother. Let's see another connection. Let's go to John 19 and 25. John 19 and 25. Now there stood by the cross of Christ his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Christ therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother. What did he say, brother? Woman, behold thy son. What did he say? Woman, behold thy son. See? So the use of woman, the word woman, recalls the language of what? Genesis, brothers and sisters. The first woman in the world. You see, brothers and sisters? It's clear. It's clear. Why is he using this terminology? If you just skim through the Bible, brothers and sisters, you'll miss the beauty. Why did John put this in there? Why did he even have to put this stanza in here? Why did he even have to put a name or, you know, a term on what he called his mother? Why is it important? We're seeing it, brothers and sisters. Because based on the Messiah's repetition, we learn that the title is both what? Respectful and theologically important in revealing the fulfillment of a promise. Because we saw in Genesis, the third chapter, that he, the Most High, would put enmity between the, the woman's seed in the serpent seed. In the woman's seed would bruise the serpent's head. We're seeing that the woman's seed was Christ. Now remember in, in John the second chapter, right? It told you that this was the beginning of his ministry. This was the first miracle in his ministry. And the disciples believed on him from that moment. That was the beginning of Christ being revealed. That is the Messiah, brothers and sisters. That was the very beginning of him being revealed as the Messiah. 
which Satan understood this. He understood now he would need to work overtime, right? Because he already had men following him. He already had men who were clear, that had clarity on who he was. He was the one that was going to, that was prophesied in Genesis 3 and 15, that what? That he should bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent would bruise his heel. Let's talk about that, brothers and sisters. Let's talk about that. Let's go to Deuteronomy 28 and 39. Because remember, brothers and sisters, why, why did he turn water into wine? What did that mean? What was that significant of? Why would he turn water into wine? Why would that be the first miracle chronologized in the Gospel of John? You'll see that according to the Bible, brothers and sisters, a lack of wine represents a curse. Let's take a look. Deuteronomy 28 and 39. Thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them, but shalt neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. Now, brothers and sisters, here the author describes the curses which would befall Israel if they were disobedient. Right, any Hebrew, any Israelite knows Deuteronomy twenty-eight. It's a list of curses. Essentially, the last probably forty scriptures uh, are curses. The first twenty or fifteen or so are pronouncements, uh, pronouncements of blessings. But this is the scriptures that we go to, right? When we prove the slave ships out of the Bible, this is where we go. And this was one of the curses for our disobedience. Can you read that one more time, brother? Deuteronomy 28 and 39. Thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them, but shalt neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. See, so not only should our houses, but our vineyards will be taken from us. You see, brothers and sisters, and we just wanted to go here to show what? We wanted to show that according to the text, a lack of wine is indicative of a curse. You see that, brothers and sisters? So now you can understand the hermeneutics of the Bible when it talks about a lack of wine, right? All throughout the Bible, it talks about this. Because why? If you study wine in the Bible, it represents joy. It represents happiness, right? So a lack of wine was a curse. Christ was bringing wine to the wedding, brothers and sisters, right? Further proof. Let's go to Zephaniah, brother. And see, this is why Christians have to get into the Old Testament, because it's impossible to fully understand the Messiah without the Old Testament. We're going to prove it. We're going to use the Bible to prove that according to God, a lack of wine is considered a curse in the manuscript. Zephaniah 1 and 13. Therefore their goods shall become a booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses but not inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink of the wine thereof. See that, brothers and sisters? You see? So it's, according to the author, the wine of the vineyard should do what, brothers and sisters? <laughs> should fall into the hands of the enemy. Take a look at that one more time, brothers and sisters. Could you read that again, brother? 13. Therefore their goods shall become a booty, and their houses a desolation. Their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses. They'll build the house. But not inhabit them. They won't live there. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. But not what, brother? Drink the wine thereof. See? 
So according to the text, a, a bereavement of wine is indicative of a divine curse, brothers and sisters. Now, you can only understand this theologically if you read the Old Testament. See, so even with Christians, you know, deal with the New Testament and all that. If you neglect the Old Testament, you're, you're not getting it. It's impossible to get it. The Holy Spirit can't lead you, right? If you neglect the rest of the records that are there. So that's two scriptures. And, and we know that the Bible says by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let all things be established, right? This is our second witness. Our first witness was what? Moses in Deuteronomy. Now we're in Zephaniah. Mimicking, right? The same exact principle. Let's go to Amos, brother. Because we just wanted to stick on proving that a lack of wine in the Bible, that particular verbiage is what? It's, it's speaking of a curse. So according to the Bible, Israel would be without wine, which means under a curse. Amos 9 and 11. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. We know that the tabernacle of David are the children of Israel. Okay. Verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. Closely examine the prognostication of this text, please, brothers and sisters. And of or verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. That we shall possess the remnant of Edom, which are the Europeans, and all of the heathen, which mean the other Gentiles. Anyone outside of the children of Israel will be considered a Gentile or a heathen if they don't follow the Most High God. If you eat Anything you want to eat outside of Leviticus 11, if you celebrate pagan holidays, right? If you don't honor the Sabbath, the Bible call you a heathen. Why? Because you live without law. Now, if a Gentile want to come in, as we have Gentiles in our church who follow the law, then that name wouldn't apply to them, right? That name is applicable to people who live according to no law, right? Let's read that one more time, brother. Verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Edom, and of all the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountain shall drop sweet wine. That shall do what? Drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. Brothers and sisters, according to the text, the crops will be so plentiful that the seasons for planting and harvesting will run together. So look at this. He said that the... Can you read that one more time, brother? 13. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper. The plowman. So the man getting ready to plow and, and plant the seeds will overtake the reaper. That's the man, you know, picking them up, right? That's, that's getting them, right, brothers and sisters? So it's saying that these seasons are going to be so plentiful that during the time when you should be planting, you'll also be reaping. You see this, brothers and sisters, this is a prognostication. We know that this is upon the second coming of the Messiah because the children of Israel have not possessed the Gentiles. They have not possessed Edom yet, right? So this is prophetic here. And the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. And the mountain mountain shall drop sweet wine, 
and all the hills shall melt. See, so this is prosperity in hyperbolic fashion. That's what's being described here, right? Verse 14. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the, the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. Look at this. Could you read that again? And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. See, examine the association of the Messiah with the time of freely flowing wine, brothers and sisters. Can you read that one more time, brother? Because it's telling you that he would bring the captivity of my people again, bring it to remembrance, right? So there will be wine in, in abundance during this time. Verse 14. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and shall drink the wine thereof. They shall, so now they'll plant and drink the wine, right? They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. See, so the prophets used the image of abundant wine to represent the restoration of Israel to prominency. See, remember, we proved that what? A lack of wine was a curse. This is telling you there will be a time when wine will be in abundance. What did Christ do as his first miracle? <laughs> there was a lack of wine, which represents a curse. He brought the best wine. You see, brothers and sisters? So that was the revealing. That was the coming out party of the Messiah of these particular passages here. Right? That was the beginning, brothers and sisters, of the restoration. Can you read the next scripture, brother? Verse 15. And I will plant them upon their land, mm. and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. So the ultimate fulfillment of the promised land to Abraham will occur during Christ's millennial reign on earth. See, all this is prophetic because we haven't got our land yet. We're still scattered. We're not in the promised land, the land of Israel right now, brothers and sisters. We just wanted to show that the symbolism of the first sign of water into wine announces what? That the restoration of God's people had begun. The restoration had begun at that moment, brothers and sisters. Christ was showing you, I'm bringing the wine back. <laughs> okay? I'm bringing the wine back. Because a lack of wine, according to Zephaniah, according to Amos, according to Deuteronomy, is a curse. It's a divine curse. Brothers and sisters, further proof. Let's go to John 15, brother. Let's go back to John. We'll be in John a lot today. We'll be in John a lot today. John 15. We're going to have Brother Corey read verse 1 through 5. John 15 and 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. <laughs> you see, brothers and sisters? Now you understand this. Now you understand. Continue, brother. Verse 2. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine. What did he say? I am the vine. Look at this. See? So when the Bible speaks of a vine, it's referring to a grapevine, brothers and sisters. 
See, and there's only one thing in this world that has the ability to turn water into wine. And that is indeed a grapevine, brothers and sisters. It takes the water from underneath the earth. It travels up the vine and into the grapes. <laughs> you see? So he said, listen, I'm bringing the wine. I'm the vine for the wine. <laughs> Christ was a cold brother. This is a cold brother right here, brothers and sisters. See, we read this many times. We read John 15 many times, but we probably didn't make the connection. Because why? Because we have to go into the Old Testament. There's no way that you can read John like a novel and actually get the point that he's trying to prove, brothers and sisters. To have no wine is a curse. Just theologically speaking, hermeneutically speaking, brothers and sisters. Christ turned water into wine and then said what? What did he say in verse 1, brother? I am the true vine, and my father is the husband. See, that's crystal clear. Now you understand what it means when Christ says, I'm the true vine. I am the grapevine. I bring the wine. Without wine, you're under a curse, Israel. Without, without the vine, you're under a curse, Israel. Without me, there's no wine, Israel. Go into the Bible, brothers and sisters. Go into your... If you have an electronic Bible, type in the word wine and you'll see that there's a plethora of scriptures that have the word wine and Mary in it. Happiness. So it represents happiness, brothers and sisters. Now, are we insinuating that people should go get drunk and all this? No, we're not, brothers and sisters. We're just teaching God's word. Okay, so we this is not us trying to stimulate a person to go drink wine. We're just showing you the, the verbiage, the vernacular of the Bible, there's hidden messages in it, brothers and sisters. And only through the Holy Spirit could, could we understand this. Can you understand this, brothers and sisters? This is not some information we just, we just can't, that come from the mind of a man, brothers and sisters. Only the Holy Spirit can help us understand this. Let's read that one more time. Verse 1, brother. Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the husband. We just wanted to bring that up. Because I believe now that brothers and sisters can understand when it says, I am the true vine now. He's telling you, I'm bringing the wine back. And I started off in John, the second chapter, bringing the wine. See, because that didn't have to be there. That miracle or sign, brothers and sisters, could have not been chronologized. If John chronologized it, there was a reason. And we're seeing why. We're seeing why, brothers and sisters. Let's go to John 4, brother. Let's go to the next. Let's go to the next uh, sign or what people like to call miracles. John, the fourth chapter, we'll have Brother Corey read the 46th through the 54th verse. Take a look, brothers and sisters. John 4 and 46. So Christ came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman who said or whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, here it is. Look at what's going on here, brothers and sisters. It's telling you Christ came back to Cana. And then it tells you what transpired in Cana, you know, in his past. Could you read that one more time, brother? Verse 46. So Christ came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. Where he made the water of wine. So he came back to the same city. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Christ was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, 
for he was at a point of death. Then said Christ unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Christ saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Christ had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was going down, his servant met him, and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. What did he do, brother? He inquired of them, of his servants, the hour when he began to amend. So they, he asked them, he asked his servants, what time did he begin to, to get better, right? What did they say, brother? And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. One o'clock, brothers and sisters. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Christ said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed in his whole house. And his what? His whole house. This is again the second miracle that Christ did. Read that again, brother, please. This is again the second miracle that Christ did. Now, let's jump back to 47, brothers and sisters. We want to run through it first, and then we'll come back and, and, and break it down. Look at verse 47. 47. When he heard that Christ was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son. Now, there's a couple of things we see, brothers and sisters. He's not interested in who Christ is, but what he can do. You see that, brothers and sisters? He's also dictating the method of the healing. Can you read that one more time, brother? 47. When he heard that Christ was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at a point of death. Now, what's clear, brothers and sisters, the point that we want to make is that it was the testimony of others that led him to seek Christ. That's why they made it a purpose to tell you he was back in Cana of Galilee where he turned water into wine. So it was clear that this nobleman had heard the testimony of what transpired, brothers and sisters. Therefore, when Christ came back, he said, you know what? I need to go see that brother. I need to see that brother. You know, my son is dying. No one can help him. This brother, according to what I understand, he turned water into wine. You see that, brothers and sisters? Now, that is the key point. Let's go to Romans 10 and 16, brother. That's the key point that we want to bring, that we want to focus on right now, brothers and sisters. We're at Romans, the 10th chapter, the 16th verse. Romans 10 and 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? That's Isaiah 53. 17. So then faith cometh by hearing. Read that part again, please. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So according to the author, faith comes from the source of hearing the content of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, so we all have faith in something. But what our faith is in depends on what or who we are listening to. So it was clear, Paul was showing us that refusal to believe what God says amounts to disobedience. So it tells you that faith comes by hearing. The man had faith based on what he heard. We're showing you what? The power of your testimony. The power of your testimony. He heard people speaking about what Christ had done just a few days earlier. Turning the water into wine. That led the brother to track Christ down. 
to track Christ down, brothers and sisters, to have faith. So we're showing you the power of testimony. Could you read 17 one more time, brother? Verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. See? So this is the importance of your testimony, brothers and sisters. Because how can a person come to the faith if no one is teaching them? Remember, Paul said, <clears throat> the New Testament tells you what? How can they hear, hear without a preacher? See? So we're showing you that it was by hearing his faith came that led the brother to go track down the Messiah. Why did he track him down? Because it, his fame had already grown. Christ, the Messiah's fame had already grown after doing that miracle, brothers and sisters. Let's go to Isaiah 40 and 13, brother, because what was the other part of it? The brother tried to, the brother tried to dictate to Christ how to heal his son. Remember that, brothers and sisters? You remember that? He said, come on down, you know, come on down to, to heal my son. So he was essentially telling Christ how to heal, right? He was trying to force him to do it in the fashion that he wanted him to do. it. Let's take a look. <clears throat> Isaiah 40 and 13. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being this counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him? And taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed him to the way of understanding. Brothers and sisters, who is qualified to give God advice? Hmm? The implication here is twofold. Number one, the spirit is sovereign, brothers and sisters. It's almighty, and no one commands the Most High. Nobody. No one commands Christ other than the Father. See? So those were two things we we noticed. We noticed that the brother did not believe in Christ, not as the Messiah. He believed that Christ could help him. So he came to Christ and then he tried to do what? He tried to dictate how Christ would heal. And we do that same thing, brothers and sisters. We do the same thing. We try to dictate to God how he will help us. Well, I want to be happy, but I only want to be happy this way. It's the same thing that we do. And guess what, brothers and sisters? According to the author, the Most High needs no counselor to advise him in the government of the world. He needs no counselor, brothers and sisters. But these were the things that we were seeing. We were seeing that what? Number one, it was important, right? It was important that the brother had a chance to hear, right? The signs, the miracles. That's why we're doing this. Brothers and sisters, because it was based on what he heard. Faith come by hearing the word of God, right? And then we wanted to point out not only how powerful the testimony of Christ is, but subsequent to that, how he was trying to direct Christ. He was trying to advise Christ how to do the miracle. And Isaiah said, what did Isaiah say about that, brother? Isaiah 40 and 13. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord? Or being his counselor had taught him, with whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding. See, so according to the author, brothers and sisters, the Mosai needs no counsel. He needs no one to advise him. So we have to remember that. We have to internalize that, brothers and sisters, because I know we've all done it. We've tried to dictate God how to help us. 
well, yes, father, I, you know, I want to be happy. I want to be married, but I want to be married to this person. Yes, I, I want a good paying job, father, but I want that job. Yes, father, I want a car, but I want that car. You see, brothers and sisters, it's the same thing. It's the same principle that we do today. Christ sent him on his way. He's like, well, no, I'm going to do it my way. <laughs> you know, go home, your son as well. They don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I'm sure that's what Christ was thinking. Like, listen, brother, go home. Your son is fine. Okay. <laughs> don't try to advise me, though. Right. Let's go to John 5, brother. Let's go to the next miracle. Let's go back to John. This will be the third, brothers and sisters. John, the fifth chapter, the fifth verse. We'll have Brother Corey read five through nine. John five and five. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. How long, brother? Thirty and eight years. Thirty-eight years, brothers and sisters. Verse six. When Christ saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him. What did he say, brother? Will thou be made whole? What did Christ ask him? Will thou be made whole? So he asked the question intentionally to draw out the real issue. He said, do you want to be healed? Verse 7. The impotent man answered him. What did he say? Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another step it down before me. So rather than answering the question directly, brothers and sisters, he explained why he hadn't been healed. Take a look at that one more time. Verse 7, the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another step it down before me. So it was clear the man was living in defeat. He blamed his situation on other people. Brothers and sisters, he adopted what? Uh, a victim's mentality, right? Christ asked him a clear question, brother, do you want to be healed? He goes into a long soliloquy about why he isn't here. And he's blaming other people. Well, no one helped me out. What did Christ say, brother? Verse 8. Christ said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. What did he say? Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. So it's clear, brothers and sisters, we in this particular passage, we are reading the human tendency to attribute a personal failure to others. See, the brother accepted no responsibility for his circumstances. He places the responsibility of his circumstances on other people, right, brothers and sisters? So the spirit of victimization puts a restraining order against healing. We want to take a look at that one more time because what you'll discover, brothers and sisters, what you'll find is this man represents the children of Israel. We're going to prove that. Let's jump back up, brother. Read, uh, read 6 and 7. John 5 and 6. When Christ saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, Will thou be made whole? Do you want to be healed, sir? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another step it down before me. Brothers and sisters, this man represents the children of Israel. This man represents the children of Israel. And guess what? We do the same thing this brother did. The spirit of victimization 
The white man, the white man, the white man. The white man, the white man, the white man. The white man, the white man, the white man. This is all you hear from our people. Especially Israelites. If you go on YouTube and type in Israelites, that's what you're going to see, brothers and sisters. That's what you're going to see. It's like we have got comfortable in the spirit of being victimized. We love being the victim. When you come into the truth of Christ through the Holy Spirit, you stop playing that card. Now, am I condoning what the white man or Edom have done to us? No. But I'm no, we're nobody's victim, brothers and sisters. This is the same thing that this brother was doing. How do we know this was representing Israel? Can you read five, brother? Verse five. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity 30 and eight years. 30 and eight years, right? So the brother was paralyzed essentially for 38 years, right? Let's go to Deuteronomy, the second chapter, brother. This represents the children of Israel. We're going to read verse 1 just for context and then go straight to it in verse 14. Deuteronomy 2 and 1. Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea as the Lord spake unto me. And we, comp and we compassed Mount Seir many days. Many days. So according to the text, the context is what? We're in the wilderness, right? By the Red Sea. Okay. Jump to verse 14, brother. What happens after this? Deuteronomy 2 and 14. What's that say, brother? And the space in which we came from Kadesh Bar Barnea until we were come over the brook Zered was 30 and 8 years. How long was it, brother? 30 and 8 years. Until all the generation of the men of war were wasted out from among the host, as the Lord swear unto them. See, so the man had been sick for 38 years. Israel had wandered in the wilderness for 38 years, brothers and sisters. See? So it was the same thing. And what were we doing? We were blaming other people. <laughs> we were blaming Moses. We were blaming the Most High. Right? We were paralyzed in the wilderness uh, with an inability to progress into the promised land, brothers and sisters, for 38 years. And this is what Christ was showing us. Christ is saying, listen, I'm the one that's going to heal you. I'm going to be the one to tell you, Israel, to pick up your bed and walk. While you don't deserve it because you're excusing it. You're blaming everything on the white man. When I tell you this, the white man could do nothing to you, Israel, had you followed my law. See, and that's why anyone who's followed our church, understand, we, we don't play that white man, white man, white man game. We, we don't play that game. Because the white man don't have no power. If he had power then he wouldn't have men walking around with pumps and lipstick on in his country. So he doesn't have any power. Okay, we were subdued and subjected. We were subjugated for what we did. They couldn't touch us, brothers and sisters. They knew the rules of engagement, which was get these people to sin and we'll be able to subjugate them. So that's how we look at it, brothers and sisters. And yes, we teach white people, baptize them, all that. Because I don't have, we don't have any indignation against white people. We have indignation at our forefathers, in a sense, for being disobedient. And we make sure to make sure that doesn't happen going forward. We teach our children that, look, this is, all of this transpired based on disobedience, brothers and sisters. Christ was showing us what? When he healed that brother, he said, I'm going to be the one to tell you, take up your bed and walk. Let us show you. 
Let's go to Jeremiah 30 and 3, brother. Chapter 30, verse 3. Because remember, John said what? In John 20. That the whole purpose of his gospel was so you would believe he was the prophesied Messiah. Jeremiah 30 and 3. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord. That I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. That's the Native American. The Israel is the natives, the Hispanics. So you had the Vietnamese, the Philippines, the Cambodians, you know, the Blaiqua Tainos or Puerto Ricans, right? The Mexicans, the Dominicans. All these people would be from the northern kingdom of Israel. And Judah. Judah, the Judeans, which are the black tribes. You had Benjamin, Judah, and Levi. Judah, of course, is the Negroes, uh, who you would call Negroes. Benjamin is who? Benjamin is the warriors. These were the West Indies, Trinidad, Tobago, Jamaica, all those areas. Those people were from Benjamin. And then you had Levi, who were the priests. Who is that? The Haitians, brothers and sisters. We are all together the children of Israel. Can you read it from the top, brother? Verse 3. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord. Saith the commandment keeper's church. Saith the Lord. Saith brother Sid. The Lord. Saith brother Corey. Saith the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. See? So this verse in Jeremiah is about what? The restoration. Of Israel in the millennial kingdom of Christ. Pick up your bed and walk Israel. <laughs> See God's restoration of the whole nation. To their own land. Has in view a final regathering. To never be removed again. Christ will deliver us that land again. And we will never ever. We will never ever be removed again. Brothers and sisters. See this is what Christ was showing. <laughs> He had a brother who represented the children of Israel, which was paralyzed for 38 years and making excuses about it. We did the same thing, the complaining, right? We complained about manna. We complained about quail. We, we complained about everything, just like the brother did in, in John, the fifth chapter. Christ said, pick up your bed and walk, brother, right? Pick up your bed and walk. He's showing you that he is the one that will do what verse 3 says. And what does it say, brother? Verse 3. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. So this section predicts that better days are coming for God's people. Brothers and sisters, I need you to notice that Ahiah does not just restrict his promise to the Judeans. He said, I will bring again the captivity of my people, Israel, northern kingdom, the Hispanic native tribes, and Judah, or the Judeans, which are the dark tribes. So all of us together will be what? Returned to our land, never to be evicted again. And Christ is saying, these prophecies of the Old Testament, my signs... My miracles are pointing to certain prophecies in the Old Testament. I'm the one prophesied to come. See, that was the whole purpose of John's gospel, brothers and sisters. Yes, the healings were real. These were actual real signs. But they represented something, brothers and sisters. They represented something. 
And we're, we're using the Bible to show us again today. Let's go to Ezekiel, Brother Corey. We'll go to Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16 and 17, please. Ezekiel 11 and 16. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where ye have been scattered. And assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. He will do what? Give you the land of Israel. So this speaks of the ultimate full restoration of Israel in the future millennium reign, brothers and sisters. We know that the Bible tells you when Christ returned, he's going to reign for a thousand years and the children of Israel will reign with them and be delivered back into the promised land. So according to the text, the most high will preserve his people, even though they've been scattered throughout the world. Let's read those two scriptures again, brother, please. Ezekiel 11 and 16. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the heathen and although I have scattered them among the countries, Yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. I will protect them. I will still hear their prayers in all the other countries. Verse 17. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give to you or give you the land of Israel. See, so the Most High first promised to sustain our people in exile. Then he promised to gather and assemble us from our places of exile, brothers and sisters. See, Christ telling that brother to get up and walk after 38 years was pointing to these prophecies. So the beginning of us coming back to our land was Christ dying on that cross, brothers and sisters. Christ had to come in order to redeem us first. Because without blood, there's no redemption. So Christ had to come redeem us. And guess what? When you study the gospel, the disciples thought that Christ was going to give us the land back at that time. But Christ is asking them, like, have you read? <laughs> have you read that I must, I must die first and then come back? So the disciples, brothers and sisters, they really didn't fully comprehend it also, right? They didn't really understand the scriptures. That's why John put it together this way for us, brothers and sisters. He, point, he chose particular or specific miracles or signs, understanding that you could, you know, go into the Old Testament and see what it was predicting, what was prophesied, what was the prognostication that Christ was trying to uh, reveal to our people through these miracles. And brothers and sisters, follow us to the next sign. We're going to John the sixth chapter, we're going to have Brother Corey read uh, 1 through 12. John 6, verse 1. After these things, Christ went over the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Christ went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Look at this, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> Once again, read verse 2, please, brother. 
verse 2. And a great multitude followed him. Why? Because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Once again, brothers and sisters, our people in these signs. The Bible tell you that Jacob seeketh after a sign. Esau, or the Greeks, they seeketh after knowledge. That has been an impediment to our success, brothers and sisters. That we're so visual because of how God made us. We're very physically gifted people. That we are very motivated by visuals, brothers and sisters, rather than knowledge. We want to see something miraculous. And that is going to prove detrimental for our people in these last days, brothers and sisters. Because the Most High is trying to wake us up, but you're waiting for something miraculous to happen. And it's not, brothers and sisters. It's, by the time that happens, it'll be over, brothers and sisters. So what we have to do is internalize the knowledge. This particular lesson, brothers and sisters, is to, to heighten the level of reverence that all people, not just our people, but all people have for the Messiah. And not only the reverence to be elevated for him, but the admiration for the Bible, brothers and sisters, there is no record that you can sit on the same table as this Bible, brothers and sisters. There is no piece of literature that can compare to this Bible, brothers and sisters. And we're going to show why. We're going to show why by utilizing the Bible. So you can, uh, you can read verse 3, brother, please. John 6 and 3. And Christ went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. What is it, brother? A Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Further proof that Christ celebrated, and Jews celebrated the Passover. They didn't celebrate Easter, brothers and sisters. See, I take a Christian right here. What did Christ celebrate? Holy days? See? This is where you take them, brothers and sisters. The gospel is your friend. The gospel is your greatest tool when you're trying to convert a Christian, brothers and sisters. Why? Because they'll go to Paul. They'll go to Romans, Corinthians, Galatians. They'll go all there. You bring them right here. You bring them right to the gospel because the gospel is clear on Christ's behavior, brothers and sisters. This is very, very vital that is teaching you or telling you what time of year this was. This was in the spring, brothers and sisters. So this would have been around March. Passover was in around March, brothers and sisters. is in March, which is springtime, okay? Can you read that one more time, brother? Verse 4. In the Passover, a feast of the Jews was nigh. When Christ then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he said unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread, that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now here it was, you had brothers, multitude of people following the Messiah around based on his ability to heal. Christ asked Philip, what did he ask him, brother? Verse 5, when Christ then lifted up his eyes and saw a great multitude of company coming to him, he said unto Philip, whence shall we buy bread, that these may eat? They need food. Where can we buy bread to eat? Right. Verse 6. And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Christ is a cold brother. <laughs> See, and this is in your personal life. This is in my personal life. Christ, or really the Most High, orchestrates or has the earth conspire against you, right? 
It puts you in a circumstance where you have to bow down, where you have to submit to his lordship, brothers and sisters, right? Here it was. This was a teaching moment for Philip, right? Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Christ said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. There was what? Much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Christ took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples. Now let's break this down. What did he do, brother? And Christ took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples. Let's stop right there, brothers and sisters. Look at what Christ did. He didn't do a long soliloquy. He didn't do a, a long prayer. He gave thanks. You see that? Before that, the only thing he did was thank the Most High. Showing you. <laughs> you see? Being thankful, brothers and sisters. Christ didn't go into this long, deep prayer. He simply did what? Showed gratitude. The Most High loved that. Christ understood it. See? Gratitude. How much gratitude have you been showing? Brothers and sisters, how much complaining have you been doing? And forgive me, brother, I'm an Israelite just like you. So I know that our people complain. I know it. We always look for where it could be better at instead of looking at how good it already is. Christ was clear. He did what, brother? Verse 11. And Christ took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down. And likewise of the fishes, as many as they would. Now, let's break that part down, brothers and sisters. It was clear that Christ was using the disciples to do what? Feed the people. The same thing he does right now. See? He gave it to the disciples first. Then the disciples took it out. See, this was, this was brothers and sisters, this was principle here. What he was showing here. Is that it's going to come to those who are my disciples first. And my disciples will feed the other people. That's the same today, brothers and sisters. Those of us who are disciples of the, Mosi uh, of the Messiah will be used to distribute. See? So, a lot of people, they, they're not disciples of Christ. They're not even, they don't even read the Bible. Those people cannot be used. Only his disciples. Disciple is a student, brothers and sisters. He will use you if you become a good student. Because why? The best teachers were the best students, brothers and sisters. This is key. It's key that he set it up just like this. This is how he orchestrated it. He could have gave it, he could have, he could have delivered it any way that he wanted, but he wanted it to go to the disciples. Why? Because he was teaching his disciples a principle that you're going to be responsible for feeding my people. Remember. When Peter had denied Christ, right? <laughs> when, when Peter denied Christ and Christ came and restored him and asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? What did Christ say subsequent to Peter's answer? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So we are responsible, brothers and sisters, those who are considered disciples of the Most High God. That means daily study. Daily obedience, he will use you 
Brothers and sisters. Can you read that one more time, brother? Verse 11. And Christ took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed it to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. There's another principle there, brothers and sisters. What did he tell them to do, brother? Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Mismanagement, brothers and sisters. All throughout the manuscript, the Most High teaches us, and Christ also teaches us the importance of management. Okay? So Christ was teaching us that principle. He will never, as I discovered reading the Bible, he'll never give you what you pray for, only what you can manage. Brothers and sisters, we are stewards. One of the most highest pet peeves is bad management. Anything you mismanage, you will lose, brothers and sisters. I can assure you this. Anything you mismanage, you will lose. Not everything you lose has been mismanaged, but I guarantee you anything that you mismanage, you will lose. Go back to Genesis brothers and sisters, where it said he did not allow the herbs in the grass to grow. Why? Because he didn't have someone to till the ground. He didn't have someone to manage it, brothers and sisters. All the, there's a, there's a, a myriad of um, miracles in the Bible about management, right? So that was another principle here, brothers and sisters, that, that Christ was showing us is mismanagement or lack thereof. He's showing you good management here or good stewardship. We have to implement that, brothers and sisters. So there was a lot just in this, these first 12 verses, brothers and sisters. But I want to go back up to the original point of what Christ was teaching us about himself here. Okay, let's jump to verse. Let's jump to verse uh, nine, brothers. John six and nine. There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves. Five barley loaves. And two small fishes. Two fish. But what are they among so many? And Christ said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. There was what? Much grass in the place. Why is he talking about grass, brothers and sisters? Why is he talking about grass? What does it say, brother? And Christ said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now, let's deal with that grass, brothers and sisters. Why is it telling us that there's much grass here? Now, number one, we know that it's around the Passover. So this is springtime. This is around March, what we would call March today. But why is he telling us that there's much grass here? Right? Let us show you something interesting. Let's go to Mark 6 and 39, brothers and sisters. This is the same exact uh, story here. Same exact story. But Mark gives us a piece that John did not give us, right? Take a look at this closely, okay? Mark 6 and 39. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifty. Order. He's showing you order. Verse 41. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. Now, I need you to examine verse 39, brothers and sisters, because Mark records 
for us that Christ commanded them all to sit down in groups. Where? On the green grass. Let's take a look. 39. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. Brothers and sisters, interestingly enough, the reference to green pastures or green grass is only used in two situations in the Bible. Only two times. And according to the text, that he's telling you that what? He's telling you that he had compassion towards the people because they were what? They were like sheep with no shepherd. How do we know? Look at 34, brother. Jump to verse 34. 34. And Christ, when he had came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them. Why? Because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. Because what? They were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Look at that. You see that, brothers and sisters? What you'll discover is this story, this miracle links to the famous Psalms 23. After he, right before he fed them, it said that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. What was he teaching us about himself here, brothers and sisters? Psalms 23. Psalms 23 is what he taught us by this miracle. Let us show you. Psalms, the 23rd chapter, the first and second verse. Psalms 23 and 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. In what? In green pastures. <laughs> he leadeth me beside the still waters. Look at this, brothers and sisters. Look at this closely because this passage, not so incidentally, is the other place in the Bible where God's provision is linked with green grass. You cannot find green grass anywhere, brothers and sisters, except for in a vision in, in Revelations. But this is the only place in the Bible. Now, remember, Mark 6 and 34 said he had compassion on the people because they were like sheep with no shepherd. That links flawlessly here. Can you read that again, brother? Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. That's clear, brothers and sisters. What you'll find, which what, you, what you'll find is Psalms twenty-three links closely with the feeding of the five thousand. See, here we read of what? A prognostication that was fulfilled in John the sixth chapter. He was showing that he was the shepherd. Brothers and sisters. That's what he was showing. He made them sit down in the green pastures, the green grass. He's telling you, listen, I'm Psalms 23. I'm the shepherd that David spoke of. How do we know? Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34 highlights something that we need, brothers and sisters. Let's go there. Ezekiel 34 and 14. We'll have Brother Corey read 14 through 16. Ezekiel 34 and 14. I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. So suddenly, the feeding of the 5,000 is linked with one of the greatest expressions of God's love and support ever committed to paper, brothers and sisters. See, that's what that miracle was about. 
him sitting down the people on the green grass and taking two fish and five loaves and feeding over 5,000 men. What was he telling you? He was telling you John 10 and 11. This is what he was telling you. This is what he was trying to show, brothers and sisters. It doesn't get any clearer than this. John 10 and 11. John 10 verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Who is he? The good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the, for the sheep. See, that's what Christ was showing you with that particular, with that particular um, sign or miracle. He sat 5,000 people down. Set all 5,000 down and did what? Set all 5,000 down and fed them with five loaves and two fishes. See, so the gospel writer points us to Psalms 23 that we may recognize the Messiah as the good shepherd. Let's go back to Psalms 23, brother. Let's go back to Psalms 23. See, this is what the miracles represent. Every one of the miracles was to highlight or reveal who the Messiah was. John told us that in the 20th chapter of his record, of his book, right? Psalms 23 and 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He fed them with two, with two fish and five loaves. Verse 2. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Brothers and sisters, this principle was illustrated directly after the feeding of the 5,000. Let us prove that. He made them lie down or sit down in green pastures, fed them. And then he led them by the still waters in the same exact chapter. Let us show. Let's go to John 6 and 16, brother. The title of today's lesson, Meaning in the Miracles. Meaning in the Miracles, brothers and sisters. John 6 and 16. And when even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea, and entered into a ship, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Christ was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. And what happened, brother? And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Christ walking on the sea. They saw him doing what? Walking on the sea and drawing nigh into the ship. And they were afraid. But he said unto them. What did he say, brother? It is I. Be not afraid. See? So this links flawlessly with Psalms 23 when it says, I lead them by the still waters. So earlier in this chapter, John chapter 6, he did what? He fed the 5,000. Why? Because he had compassion. They were sheep with no shepherd. So what was he pointing to? He's telling you, I'm the good shepherd. I am Psalms 23. Psalms 23 was about me. See? And then he did what? Then he did this. What does this represent, brothers and sisters? Read 21 one more time, please, brother. Verse 21. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Now, it's key here. Christ was walking on the sea, right, brothers and sisters? Let us, let us read that one more time. Let's read uh, 19, brother, please. Verse, verse 19. 
So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Christ walking on the sea. He was what? Walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. Now, what was he teaching us here? What was he teaching us here about himself? What was he revealing to us by him walking on the sea? Let us break down the miracle, brothers and sisters. Let's go to Isaiah 57. Let's deal with the water part. What does the water represent? What does the sea represent? Let's go to Isaiah, the 57th chapter, the 20th verse, brothers and sisters. Isaiah 57 and 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Brothers and sisters, this particular text is twofold. Here we see wickedness causes restlessness. That's number one, right? Can you read that one more time, brother? Because here we're seeing that people are being compared to the wild and tumultuous waves of the ocean or the sea. Verse 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. See, so the metaphor of the sea is elegantly well fitted to describe the uneasiness of the wicked. If you've ever seen a storm out on the sea, he's saying the wicked are like that, just to and fro, unable to rest, right? Can you read that one more time? Verse 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea. They are like the... Troubled sea. The wicked are like the turbulent sea in a constant state of agitation. So here we see that in the Bible, the sea can represent or does represent in certain instances the wicked, right? The Gentiles, right? You see that? Let's go to Hebrews. Uh, actually, before we go to Hebrews, let's go to Psalms 144 and 7. Further proof. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, let all things be established. Psalms 144, brothers and sisters. We'll have Brother Corey read the seventh verse. Psalms 144 and 7. Send thine hand from above. Rid me and deliver me out of great waters. Out of what, brother? Out of great waters. From the hand of the strange children. From the hand of who? The strange children. Strange children indicates foreigners or Gentiles, brothers and sisters. And here it is. We're seeing waters being compared to Gentiles again. See? So Christ was... We're going to break down this miracle all the way. We first needed to identify the water. What does water represent in that particular um, miracle? Now, yes, we're not saying that was a metaphor. It truly happened, brothers and sisters. But those who understood the Bible could see the correlation. Christ is revealing himself saying, I am the one written in the Old Testament. That is me. Let's read that one more time, brother, just to, to validate it um, for our, our brothers and sisters. Psalms 144 and 7. Send thine hand from above. Rid me and deliver me out of the great waters from the hand of strange children. From the hand of strange children. Let's go to Hebrews 2 and 8. Let's deal with the other part. We've already identified the water, right, brothers and sisters? We've identified the water. Let's identify the, the next part of that particular um, of that particular miracle or what's called a sign in, 
in the in John's gospel? Hebrews 2 and 8. What's that say, brother? Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Where? Under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. The imagery of then of the text, brothers and sisters, illustrates that when something is pictured under your feet, it's where? It's in subjection. Let's take a look at the first part of the verse one more time. Verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Where, brother? Under his feet. Where is subjection? Under his feet. See? So the principle being taught in this particular passage is what? Subjugation. Right? So Christ was doing what? He was walking on water. The water was under his feet. What is that telling us? That tells us Psalms 47 and 2. That's what it tells us. Brothers and sisters. We'll let the Bible interpret itself. We'll have Brother Corey read the second and third verse. Psalms 47 and 2. For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. Read that again, brother, please. Verse 3. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. See? So the psalmist emphasizes what? The subjugation of our enemies, brothers and sisters. When Christ returns to the earth, he will again exercise authority over all nations and exalt the children of Israel amongst them. This is what Christ was showing through that particular miracle. You see that, brothers and sisters? Let's read it one more time from the top. Verse 2. For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. The nations under our feet. So the implication is that our enemies will be made a footstool for our feet, brothers and sisters. See, that's just, that's what's there, brothers and sisters. Now, people may say, well, this ain't love and this, you know, Christ is about love and all that. Listen, we're just reading the Bible, brothers and sisters. We're reading the Bible. Did you have a problem when we were subjected to other people? Did you have a problem when we were being beaten, whipped, and picking peas and cotton? Did you have a problem with that? Okay. Okay. Let's go to Joshua 10, brother, to show you what the subjugation looked like or what, what being under someone's feet represents in the Hebrew culture. Joshua 10 and 24. And it came to pass. When they brought out those kings unto Joshua. Unto who, brother? Unto Joshua. Joshua. That Joshua called for all the men of Israel. And said unto the captains of the men of war which went, which went with him. Come near. Put your feet upon the necks of these kings. What did, what did Joshua tell them to do? <clears throat> Come near and put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. Mm. Brothers and sisters, Joshua had his chief military commanders place their feet on the necks of these kings. A gesture of complete subjugation in that day. 
See, that's what that represents. So when Joshua had the leaders of Israel put their feet on the necks of the enemies, it was what? It was a declaration of victory. You see, so this is what Christ was showing when he subjected those waters under his feet, brothers and sisters. He said, I am the one prophesy to put the other nations in subjection. Let's read those two scriptures one more time, brother. Verse 24. And it came to pass that when they brought out those kings into Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with him, come near. Put your foot upon, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. Mm. And they came near and put their feet upon their necks. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. The trampling of the king's necks reminds us that a similar fate awaits those who oppose the Most High. Brothers and sisters, you see that? Further proof. Let's go to Isaiah 51. Let us show you. Because somebody may say, well, what type of God is this? What type of God is this who would make somebody serve another people? Hmm. Let's see. Let's go to Isaiah 51 and 22. Let's see. Did you have a problem with this? Isaiah 51 and 22. Thus said the Lord, thus said the Lord, thy Lord, and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. So in this powerful prophecy, God has put into the hands of all nations a cup of trembling. He's saying, I've taken it out of the hands of the children of Israel and done what? Verse 23. Verse 23, but I will put it into the hands of them that afflict thee, which have said to thy soul. What did they say to us, brother? Bow down that we may go over thee. What, what did they say to us? Bow down that we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. Look at that. See, the calamities which Israel has suffered, the Most High would transfer to our foes. We wanted to show you that this is what they did to us. Okay? What did they do to us, brother? Verse 23. Verse 23. But I will put in I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee, which have said to thy soul. What did they say to us? Bow down, that me, we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body as the ground, and as the street to them that went over. See? So I don't want to hear that. I, we don't want to hear that, okay? This is what they told us to do. Bow down. Let us walk on your back. Lay down flat to the ground. See? They subjected us. See? So our condition will be speedily changed and our enemies will be severely punished according to Isaiah, the 51st chapter. See, this is why they want to keep you out of the Old Testament, Israel. This is why. They don't want you to look at this and see that this is the, the indignation they have always had against us. Bow down. Lay down flat. Let me walk on your back. See? So Christ is saying, listen, when I come back, the, the cup of trembling will now be put into their hands. You see that, brothers and sisters? 
Let's go to Isaiah 17, brother. Let's stay in the same book. We're just showing you this is what Christ was communicating to the children of Israel with these signs. Isaiah 17 and 12. Woe to the multitude of many people which make a noise like the noise of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty water. Nations means nationality. It doesn't mean country in the Bible, brothers and sisters. So once again, he's talking about Gentile nations and he's making a correlation with the noise of the sea, right? Verse 13. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them. What shall I do? But God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off, and shall be chased as the chafe of the mountains before the wind, and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Brothers and sisters, these verses read the doom of those that spoil and rob the people of God. You see this, brothers and sisters? Can you read that one more time from the top, brother? Isaiah 17 and 12. Woe to the multitude of many people, which make a noise like the noise of the seas, and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off. We just saw in John the 6th chapter, when he walked on that water, he rebuked, right? He rebuked the tempest, right? And shall be chased as the chafe of the mountains before the wind, and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. See, so closely examine the metaphor. Notice the sea imagery, which according to the author is analogous with pagan Gentile nations. The nations shall rush like many waters. See? But they'll be rebuked by the Most High. Christ was showing us that I'm the one from Isaiah 17 and 13. That's me. I have the power to walk on the water, subject the water, rebuke the wind. <laughs> See, this is what he was communicating to the children of Israel. Let's go to Malachi, brother. Chapter 4, verse 2. Let's go to Malachi. Malachi, the fourth chapter, the second through the fourth verse. Malachi 4 and 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as cows of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this said the Lord of hosts. Now, brothers and sisters, I need you to closely examine the expression used to communicate Christ's function in his pre-existence. Can you read that again, brother? Verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. The what, brother? The Son. Really? Yes. S-U-N. S-O-N? S-U-N. The son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as cows in the stall. Brothers and sisters, the Messiah's second coming will be a glorious sun rising to all that fear the Most High's name. I really need you to examine this, brothers and sisters. I need you to open up your Bible. Pull up Matthew, excuse me, Malachi, the fourth chapter. In the second verse, and look at that word son. The son of righteousness is spelled S-U-N. 
Brothers and sisters, okay? Continue, brother. Verse verse 3. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. So this is key, brothers and sisters. It's showing Christ as the Son, the S-U-N. What is what's going on here, brothers and sisters? How do we know this is referring to Christ? Let us break it down. Can you read two one more time, brother? Malachi four and two. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Arise with what, brother? With healing in his wings. Brothers and sisters, contemplate the manner in which he is said to rise with healing in his wings. Brothers and sisters, the wings of the sun are the rays of the sunbeams that it sends out. So according to the author, the sun in the sky and the son of God have identical functions. And that is what? Illumination. <laughs> so Malachi is telling him, you can look at the actual sun in the sky and understand the function of the son of God. He is not the S-U-N. But the S-U-N teaches you about the S-O-N. That's what he's teaching us here, brothers and sisters. The function of the sun in the sky communicate the Messiah's purpose to all of the earth. And we're going to prove that. Christ broke this down. Christ broke this down. He's saying, listen, you can look at the S-U-N and you'll be able to clearly understand why I was sent. Let's prove that. Let's go to John 12 and 46, brother. So go to John 12 and 46. John, the 12th chapter, the 46th verse. John 12 and 46. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. See that? So in our text, Christ tells us why he has come into the world. What did you say, brother? I am come a light into the world. That whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. See, so notice Christ doesn't say, I have the light. Rather, he says, I have come as the light. Now, that's critical, brothers and sisters. That is critical because light and darkness are Christ's metaphors for knowledge and ignorance. <laughs> Can you read that again, brother? Verse 46. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. See? So this text implies that he had a function as light before he entered the world, brothers and sisters, okay? So he came with this purpose, okay? When he came, he was the light. So just as the physical sun casts off physical darkness, so does the spiritual sun cast off spiritual darkness. For he is the light of the world, according to the text. See, this is what Christ was trying to show them. This links flawlessly with Malachi 4 and 2. Now, how did Christ try to show us that he is represented by the Son? The Son represents him. How did he show us this, brothers and sisters? John 9 and 1. We're at the sixth. Right? We told you there's seven miracles, right? Seven miracles. Where John, the ninth chapter, the first to the seventh verse, he said, I'm the light of the world. Malachi said he was the son of righteousness, S-U-N, with healing in his wings. How did Christ 
What healing or miracle or sign did Christ do to teach us that we could learn from the Son, the S-U-N, about His function? What did He teach us? What did He do? John 9, verse 1. And as Christ passed by, He saw a man which was blind from birth. And His disciples asked Him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Christ answered, Neither has this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. There's a couple of things, brothers and sisters. Let's, let's start back at the top. Because Christ sees a man who was born blind, and the disciples ask him about the cause of this blindness. Let's take a look one more time. Verse 1. And as Christ passed by, he saw a man which was blind from birth. And his disciple asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Christ answered, Neither hath this man, excuse me, neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So he was born blind for this moment, brothers and sisters, not because of sin, right? Verse four, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What did he say? And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Just prior to healing this man, Christ made this statement. What was it, brother? And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Right. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Now, brothers and sisters, let's go back to verse 5. What did Christ say right before he healed this brother? Verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. See, so Christ said this to establish what? A clear connection between the healing of this blind man and his claim to be in the light of the world. <laughs> so John's account of the healing of the man born blind is certainly a sign for it points to Christ as the light of the world, the son of righteousness. See, without the S-U in it's darkness. You cannot see, brothers and sisters. Christ said, I, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So he's telling you, you can look at the sun and understand my function. Everything that the S-U-N gives you, brothers and sisters, you could have no life without the sun, right? You could have no life at all. Nothing could live. Plants couldn't live. Nothing could live without the sun. Christ is telling you that sun was made as a pattern of me, of what my function is. You can learn about me by learning about the S-U-N. He's not saying he is the S-U-N. He's saying the S-U-N was made to do what? To teach you about me. See? And what did he do? So subsequent to him saying, as long as I'm the light of the world, excuse me, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world, what did he do, brother? Verse 6. Verse 6, when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground 
and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat in bed? He said, Listen, I'm the light of the world. He, he, he did what he healed a brother's sight. He healed a brother's sight so he could see. After telling him that what I am the light of the world, as long as I'm in the world, you have a light. You see? So every one of his documented healings or signs was what? To reveal who he was, brothers and sisters. Every one of them. Christ was not walking around just doing signs to, to do signs, brothers and sisters. He was trying to reveal to who? The children of Israel, whom he was. If you understood the Old Testament, if you understood the Torah and Tanakh, he fit all the prophecies. He fit the prophecies, brothers and sisters. All the things that was prophesied would be done for our people. Christ came and did it. And some, most of our people still don't believe. Let's go to John 8 and 12, brother. A lot of John today. And this lesson was strictly on John. John had seven miracles in, the, in, in his record. And all seven of them revealed some part about Christ. John 8 and 12. Then spake Christ again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In, de in declaring himself to be the light of the world, brothers and sisters, he was claiming to be what? The exclusive source of spiritual light. How do we know? Can you read that again, brother? Verse 12. Then spake Christ again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We know that even according to contemporary knowledge, the sun is in itself a source of light, brothers and sisters. You see that, brothers and sisters? So the text teaches us that what? If one recognizes Christ as the light of the world and follows him, he or she will always possess the light. This is what Christ was teaching. And how did he do this? First, he broke it down with his words. And then he gave you a sign. Because why? The Bible tells you, Jacob seeketh after a sign. So every miracle that Christ did was to show you part of his function as the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, he wasn't just... Everything was strategic. Everything was methodical. Everything was meticulous with the Messiah. Everything was methodical. Everything was meticulous. Everything was purpose in the Bible. Okay, brothers and sisters, the Most High wasn't just trying to fill up pages with these words. There was a specific message he was looking to communicate to his people. Right? Let's read that one more time, brother, please. <clears throat> John 8 and 12. Then spake Christ again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So the only way to be rescued from darkness and brought into the light, brothers and sisters, we're reading it. And guess what? Satan is looking to keep us in a perpetual state of spiritual darkness. Christ is telling you, as long as you follow me, 
You shall not walk in darkness. If you're following him, that means you're doing what he did, Christians. Did he eat pork? You do Sunday worship? You do Christmas? You do Easter? What did he do? See? So if you're not following the light, you're walking in darkness. I don't care what you say. The only thing Christians know about Christ is that he died on the cross for their sins. That's the only thing they know. That's most of us. We have to dedicate more time to the Messiah. We have to. It's, a, it's, it's mandatory in order to make it, Israel. It's mandatory in order to make it. The only thing we learn about Christ is that he died on the cross at Calvary. That's it. There's so much more there. You just go straight to the end. What about everything that transpired up until then, brothers and sisters? There's different functions of Christ. And he tried to reveal that by what? His miracles or his signs. And then what happened with John? John said, my number one concern is that my people know who this is. My number one concern is authenticating and validating this man's identity. That was John's number one concern. That's why it's my favorite gospel. That's why it's my favorite gospel, brothers and sisters. Let us show you. Let's go to John, the third chapter, the first through the third verse, because we're dealing with Christ as the son, the S-U-N. He's telling you that if you learn from the S-U-N, you can learn about me and my function. John three and one. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Christ by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Except what, brother? Except God be with him. Christ answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did you catch that, brothers and sisters? Did you catch that? Let's have Brother Corey read 3 one more time. Look at it closely, please. Verse 3. Christ answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot what? He cannot what, brother? He cannot see the kingdom of God. The natural man is born blind spiritually. He's telling you, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom. <laughs> see, you can't even see it. Why? Because you don't have the light. He said, I'm the light. <laughs> I'm the light and you can't even see the kingdom of God surrounding you. You can't even see it without me. You see, brothers and sisters, this is what Christ was telling us. I am the light of the earth. And as long as I'm in the earth, you will never walk in darkness. But unless a man be born again, he can't even visualize it. He can't even see it. It's all around you. I'm doing miracles. I'm doing signs. I'm doing healings. And these men cannot see it. Why? Because they're yet to be born again. Cannot see it. Cannot see it with their eyes. Cannot ascertain it. You see this, brothers and sisters? Let's go to Luke 17. Luke 17 and 20. Take a look at this, brothers and sisters. We're almost done here. Luke, the 17th chapter, the 20th verse. Luke 17 and 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, What did he say? The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. 
Neither shall they say, look here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Where is it, brother? Is within you. He is admonishing the Pharisees not to sit passively waiting on the kingdom. How do we know? Let's read those two scriptures one more time, brother, please. Luke 17 and 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. The kingdom is not going to come by you just observing, right? Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Where is it at, brother? Is within you. The text indicates that Christ began a spiritual form of the messianic kingdom at his first advent. You see that, brothers and sisters? Christ told the Pharisees that their doubting eyes were unable to see or receive the kingdom of God. He's telling you, you're looking in the sky. The kingdom is within you. Everything you need to build the kingdom is already present. But you can't see it. Why? Because you don't have the light. Who's the light? The Messiah is the light. And without him, you cannot see clearly. You cannot see clearly. Brothers and sisters, let's go to John, the 11th chapter, the 39th verse. We're here at our seventh miracle. We're here at the seventh miracle. Now, we know that the seventh number seven means completion. We know that, brothers and sisters. That's why he said he rested on the Sabbath, because he had completed his work. Now, you can find sevens all throughout the manuscript, and we'll do some numerology one day when we're led by the Most High. Right now, we're dealing with the most important thing. Numerology is just a little fun, you know, something fun, but it's really not needed. It's really not necessary. So we try to stick with, at most times, what's necessary. But if the Most High leads us to do something with it, we will. Let's go to John 11 and 39. John 11 and 39. Christ said, Take ye away the stone." Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Brothers and sisters, closely examine John's account of Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. This was during that time, right? Verse 40. Christ said unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Christ lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Why? Because <laughs> Brothers and sisters, did you catch that? Here, he said, faith come by what? <laughs> faith come by hearing. Let's, let's read what he said again, brothers and sisters. Read 41, please, Brother Corey. 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Christ lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said, mm. that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Mm. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. Bound hand and foot with grave clothes. Bound what, brother? Hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. Christ said unto them, Loose him and let him go. Now, brothers and sisters, subsequent to resurrecting Lazarus, 
Christ commanded the surrounding bystanders to go and unbind him. Let's read that one more time. Can you read 43, brother? Verse 43. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he, and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. So according to the text, there's some apparel that we possess after being resurrected. It's called grave clothes. And possession of these Clothes did what? <laughs> it restricts your ability to progress, right? Take a look at 44. 44. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. Bound. So it was almost a wrap, brothers and sisters. So they would wrap you almost like a mummy and they would put spices and different oils around the body. This, is, this was Hebrew custom, right? So it was wrapped all the way around, right? And his face was bound about with a napkin. Christ said unto them, Loose him and let him go. Now, brothers and sisters, his grave clothes, according to the text, affected his ability to walk, even his ability to see, his ability to work. So what we're seeing here is that the second part of deliverance was the removal of the grave clothes. He did hear the Messiah's voice and he came and he came alive, but he couldn't move. So when Lazarus came out of the tomb, he still carried some remnants of the grave. And according to the text, Lazarus needed help taking off the remnants of his old life. That's what we're seeing. Let's read 44 one more time, brother. 44. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. And Christ said unto them, Loose him and let him go. He told the audience to loose him and let him go. So it's a myriad of things we see in this particular passage, brothers and sisters. And what, what are we seeing? We're seeing how Christ used a physical miracle to prove a spiritual reality. That once we're brought back from the dead, as the Bible says that we were dead in our sins, we still haven't changed all the way. We still have our grave clothes on. According to the Bible, those who've learned with us know that character is represented by clothing, articles of clothing in the Bible. So it's clear here, brothers and sisters, that's the spiritual significance. This is what we're saying. And guess what? In this case, I think we see a physical analogy that acknowledges an important part of a spiritual reality. That here it was, a man was being brought back from the dead. He was bound in grave clothes where he needed other brothers to help free him right okay now let's go to john 20 stand in john we've already learned that hebrew custom was to be bound right was to be bound john 20 verse 1 the first day of the week came mary magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and see it the stone taken away from the sepulcher now this is christ Verse 2, Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple, which whom Christ loved, and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulchre. And he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. What did he see lying? The linen clothes lying, 
yet when he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie. What did he see? The linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. But what, brother? But wrapped together in a place by itself. They went in also that other disciple, which came first to, to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Brothers and sisters, Christ left behind the burial wrappings exactly as they had covered him in death. You see this? They're saying that they saw the linen clothes just laying there. It was almost like a mummy just laying there with no body in it, brothers and sisters. Now remember, what did we see with Lazarus? Lazarus was restricted. He could not be delivered by himself. He needed someone to unwrap him, to unbind him. Christ didn't need that. <laughs> See, this is what this is showing you. Christ needs no man. He needs no man to bind, to, to unbind him, brothers and sisters. Let's read that one more time. Read verse 5, brother, please. Verse 5. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet when he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. La it wrapped together in a place by itself. Now remember, Lazarus said that the napkin was covering his head. This is telling you that this napkin, Christ had this napkin just folded, just wrapped in, in place neatly. Now, there was a couple of significances about this. If you know anything about what transpired subsequent to Christ's resurrection, the Romans tried to pay the soldiers to say that someone stole his body, that the, the disciples stole his body. Now, this was significant because if the disciples or anyone had stolen his body, they would have took the clothes. They would have took the wrap, brothers and sisters. They wouldn't have had time to unwrap the, the body and then take the body and leave that. So this was significant, brothers and sisters. Any person who was going to steal Christ's body, or anybody for that matter, would have taken the whole body and dealt with the wrap su subsequent to that later on. Christ was gone, brothers and sisters, yet the garments or the, the wrap was still there. So this was so significant on many fronts. Brothers and sisters, jump to verse 5 one more time, brother, because I, I want to point something out here. Verse 5, and he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying. Why does it keep telling us about linen clothes? Read verse 6, brother. Verse 6, then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. Why, do they keep, why does John keep saying that, brothers and sisters? Why does he keep telling us what the garments, what, why is he telling us the fabric of the apparel? Hmm? Let's find out. What does that have to do with this? Ezekiel 44 and 17. This is what it has to do with it, brothers and sisters. Ezekiel 44 and 17. <clears throat> Ezekiel 44 and 17. And it shall come to pass that when they enter in at the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments. This is the apparel of the priest, brothers and sisters. What did it say? They shall be clothed with linen garments and no wool shall come upon them. 
while they minister in the gates of the inner court and within. They shall have linen bonnets upon their heads. What kind of bonnets? Linen bonnets upon their heads. And shall have linen breeches upon their loins. What kind of breeches? Linen breeches upon upon their loins. Why? They shall not gird themselves with anything that causes sweat. Why, brother? They shall not gird themselves with anything that causes sweat. Look at this, brothers and sisters. See, the linen was for the priest. Why? Because the Most High didn't want them to wear anything that caused sweat. Continue, brother, verse 19. Verse 19. And when they go forth into the inner courts, into the utter court, even into the utter court to the people, they shall put off their garments wherein they ministered and lay them in the holy chamber. Lay them where? In the holy chambers. And they shall put on other garments. And they shall not sanctify the people with their garments. So after you come out of the presence of the Most High, you were required to take off those garments and not wear them into public. Do you see this, brothers and sisters? So when they minister unto the Most High, minister means serve. The garments they wore had to be removed and left in the holy chambers before they went amongst the people. Now this is absolutely critical that you understand this, brothers and sisters. Let's go back to verse 18. 18. They shall have linen bonnets upon their heads, and shall have linen breeches upon their loins. They shall not gird themselves with anything that causes sweat. It's telling you that linen was required because the Most High didn't want anyone sweating amongst him in his presence. Why? Brothers and sisters, where is the first place that we learned about sweat? Where's the first time we hear about sweat? Genesis, the third chapter. Let's go to see. What does the Most High have against sweat? Genesis 3 and 17. Genesis 3 and 17. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. In the what, brother? In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. There was no such thing as sweat until after sin, brothers and sisters. Sweat was what? It was a side effect of sin. So since you sinned, now you must work, Adam. Adam did not have to work before his sin. See, this is what the... So sweat represents sin, according to Genesis, the third chapter. You see? So the Most High said, listen, you wear linen because I don't want you sweating amongst me. Why? Because sweat means work. Work means sin. So not according to your own works can you do this, Okay? <laughs> see brothers and sisters you see that let's go to Leviticus 16 and 2 brother we're going to end it here Leviticus the 16th chapter the 2nd through the 4th verse brothers and sisters in Leviticus the 16th chapter the most high God provides legislation regarding the day of atonement let's take a look Leviticus 16 verse 2 and the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. 
For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering. With a what? A young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle. And with the linen metri shall he be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. Jump to verse 23 and 24, brother, because why? What do we see in those particular scriptures? We just saw that the high priest would wear special consecrated linen garments for the occasion. We saw that, right? Now, what happened subsequent to that? Leviticus 16 and 23. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place. Read that again, brethren. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments and which he had put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make an atonement for himself and for the people. So after he would depart from the most holy place, he would take off those consecrated garments, brothers and sisters. So the linen garments which the high priest wore in the most holy place to offer the blood of atonement, what? Were only to be worn there and then taken off. So Christ, the garments, the linen that he had, he had to leave behind because the high priest, once you've made the sacrifice, <laughs> once you've made the sacrifice, you take those garments off. You see, brothers and sisters? So Christ not only was the high priest, this is what we're showing you. Aaron was the high priest. He was responsible for the sacrifice. Christ is the high priest under the order of Melchizedek. You see this, brothers and sisters? So he made the sacrifice and left the garments there. The same thing Aaron was required to do on the Day of Atonement. Who was our Day of Atonement? Who was our atonement? Who atoned for us? The Messiah. You see that, brothers and sisters? So not only was his garments linen that was in the sepulchre, right? But he had to leave those garments behind because the Bible tells you the, the, the garments that you sacrifice in, you have to leave behind. Let's read it one more time. Read 23 one more time, brother. Leviticus 16 and 23. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy he, place. He must take off the clothes that he had when he went inside for the sacrifice. And shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments. And come forth and offer his burnt offering and the offering for the people. And make an atonement for himself and for the people. See, so he was required to wear one thing while he was making a sacrifice. And subsequent to that, to remove those articles of clothing and put something else on before he went amongst the people. So we're seeing that John is an extraordinary piece of literature. It really is. The very small details that a lot of us skim through and skim past actually hold the most significance. Brothers and sisters, what I discovered, what Brother Corey and I discovered is that truth is in the details, brothers and sisters. Success is in the details. 
The Bible will teach you to be very detail oriented. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing in the record, in nothing in the Bible that is there by coincidence. We saw that everything that John did was meticulous. It was methodical. Everything that the Messiah did was meticulous. It was methodical. It was to teach us or to reveal himself to us, the children of Israel, brothers and sisters. Every little part of his walk, it was a three-year ministry. Every piece of his ministry, brothers and sisters, was orchestrated by who? The Most High God. I encourage our brothers and sisters to internalize what they learned today, to give Christ his level of reverence, brothers and sisters. And I, I pray, I pray that this lesson encouraged you to go back into the gospel. I know we're not reading the gospel. I know it. Our people, the children of Israel, they want to read the Old Testament, the Torah Tanakh. They want to read Romans and Paul, and they want to read Revelations. They want to read the Apographer. Listen, I have all those books. I have the Apographer and the Pseudepigrapha and Enoch and all this stuff that people want to be deep with. But the most important substance is the four books labeled the Gospel. Christ's life, brothers and sisters. Forget about the deep stuff for a moment. It's That's fine. To, you know, to learn that stuff is good. I'm not saying don't learn it. But focus on what's primary and not what's ancillary. Those other books are simply ancillary, okay? It's not the primary concern. You can get in without reading Enoch, okay? You can get in without understanding Revelations. You can't get in without knowing what the door is, knowing who the door is. There's no way, brothers and sisters. Today's lesson was meaning in the miracles, brothers and sisters. I I pray that you internalize what you learned today and give all praise and honor to the Most High Ahaya and His Son, Yeshaya. We want to say, Kwam Yasharala. Kwam Yasharala. Sin no more. Sin no more.